Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Every Rom-Com, the podcast that has fun taking romantic comedies seriously. Today in Every Rom-Com, we'll continue our travel series with a trip to Rome. Discuss one of Hollywood's greatest directors and a writer who emerged triumphant from the era of the Hollywood blacklist. And check out Audrey Hepburn in her Oscar-winning first leading role as we join her for a Roman holiday. Hey, Sophia. Hey, Jen. So this week, we're going to be doing Roman Holiday. And I wanted to ask you, like, the character in Roman Holiday is kind of running away from her duties for the day. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of wondering, like, what would you do if you could run away from your duties today and have some kind of like dream trip or excursion? Oh, that's a good question. Honestly, right now, if I could pack a little tote bag with like, The way I do when I go to a coffee shop with like seven journals and books is if I'm going to read all of them or not. But I am dying to sit in a coffee shop again. I I, I know some places you can. I don't know quite how I feel about it yet, but that's what I want. Nice. What about you? What would you do? Well, like watching Roman Holiday, I was definitely thinking about my vacation I took in Europe. I think it was 2015. And I have like two versions. Like the ambitious version is I would go back to Paris and I would like have a croissant and coffee like in an outdoor cafe and do some Mm. people watching. And then I'd go to Musée d'Orsay, the Gustave Moreau Museum, and just like walk along the Seine and do all that kind of great stuff. But the less ambitious version of me I would do the part of our vacation where we went to Lake Starnberg, which is right outside of Munich by train and just like swim in the lake there all day because it's so peaceful and beautiful. So yeah, those would be my holidays. Unfortunately, uh, both of them would require taking a plane (laughs) and money and Mm -hmm. also ignoring COVID. So that's going to wait a while. So I think your, your dream is a little more achievable at this point. I I mean, that's, That's the thing if I could just drop it all today. But, oh, I've got like seven different vacations as well. I think we should ask this question each week during our podcast of travel because it changes. And, yes, this whole looking into Italy for Roman holiday or specifically Rome made me think of my trip in Italy, which wasn't Rome. It was northern when I was in college. And, yeah, thinking about all that and how lovely that was. And I'm like, oh, that'd be great. So before we get started today talking about Roman Holiday, I'd just like to remind everyone that you can find us on our website at everyromcom.com, send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com, and we're on social media. Our Facebook is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog, our Instagram is at everyromcom, and our Twitter handle is at everyromcompod. And if you enjoy the show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. And we will have some great episodes coming up in the travel series. Next week, we're going to be taking a direct flight from Rome to Singapore as we discuss Crazy Rich Asians. And in the following weeks, we'll be covering some other great travel rom-com favorites, including Lost in Translation, Romancing the Stone, and more. 
And just a final reminder that our show features a spoiler-free section at the beginning, and we'll give you a heads up when we start the spoiler section. And now, let's get a taste of the trailer for today's movie, Roman Holiday. She's a princess. She's beautiful. And confidentially, she's a pixie. One night, she's the guest of honor at a glittering state reception. And the very next night... You have my permission to withdraw. Thank you very much. How did this cute little surprise package wind up in Greg's apartment? That's what he's wondering, too. And wait till you see the princess let her hair down, with a whole army turning Rome upside down to find her. Joe, we can't go running around town with a hot princess. You want in on this deal, or don't you? And what a deal it is when the princess starts giving Greg the royal runaround. So come along, share their gay and giddy holiday, because all the things happen to them that you'd always hope for on the happiest day of your life. Share the fun as the princess comes face to face with the kind of characters she never bumped into before. Share the glory of a romance as radiant as the Roman moonlight. And share the excitement of the wildest escapade that ever set the eternal city on its ear. <laughs> that was wild. Yeah. <laughs> well, and they keep calling Gregory Peck Greg. And that's, yeah, that's not funny. his character's name. As if it is, you know, oh, this yeah. princess is taking Gregford, which it cracks me up to have him be called Greg. Yeah. Even though he was. Um, because my husband's Greg. I don't know. I'm like, oh, oh. Anyway, wild. It's such, it's such a cheesy old time pre- trailer. Yeah. And I found a different one that was just as cheesy. So the same kind of style. So gotta <laughs> love it. Gotta so love bad. it. <laughs> so that was Roman Holiday from 1953. The director was William Wyler. Dalton Trombo did the story. Ian McClellan Hunter and John Dighton did the screenplay and rewrites. And the authorship is a bit complicated. And Jen is going to cover that later in the show. And it was up for a bunch of Academy Awards uh, and won for Best Actress uh, with Audrey Hepburn, Best Writing Motion Picture Story, and Best Costume Design, Edith Head. Uh, the legend. This was her fourth Oscar, by the way. Wow. And it was nominated for Best Picture, Director, Supporting Actor, and four other categories. So the basic premise is that there's this princess, Princess Anne. She is tired of her busy schedule and wants to escape and enjoy some time on her own. And they happen to be in Rome. And she runs off in simple clothes. But she had a bit of a breakdown earlier, and the doctor had given her some sleeping pills. So she heads out uh, and then winds up half asleep on a park bench. And then in comes the Gregory Peck character, Joe Bradley. He discovers Princess Anne on the bench and ends up taking her back to his apartment. He doesn't know that this is the princess, though, and he tries to pawn her off on the... I'm the cab driver and the cab driver like, no, 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 I can't do that. And so, so Joe being a good guy takes her back to his place and um, gets her tucked into bed. And the next morning he finds out that he actually brought home the supposedly sick princess because she's missing at the palace and they just put out a, you know, statement that she's not feeling well. And he decides to get an exclusive story on her um, day in Rome. And we mentioned that he's a journalist. Um, So at first, Anne goes off on her own, but then Joe follows her and accidentally runs into her. And 
he and his photographer friend Irving spend the day with her enjoying Rome and secretly photographing her trip. Yeah, it's a really interesting setup. And Sophia, so I just, this was a film that you had kind of uh, brought up as something to cover before we even decided on the travel series. And I'm just interested in why did you want to cover this film? Like what, what kind of feeling do you have about it? You know, Audrey's a legend, as is Gregory Peck. And I had I had seen Breakfast at Tiffany's because that's one of her famous ones. And I was disappointed. Like, I really don't like Breakfast at Tiffany's. And I don't know how I happened upon it. Maybe I was just looking for something else with her. And this story appealed to me. I'm like, oh, okay, princess story. Um, And Gregory Peck, I think the only other thing I've ever seen him in is To Kill a Mockingbird, which, uh, I mean, that's breathtaking. And I love it. And I love Atticus and maybe just wanted to see him do, you know, this romantic comedy. And and I love it. I think it's such a sweet story. And I believe them. I think their chemistry is great. I thought it was funny. And for a kind of a fairy tale, I think the ending is lovely as well. It just feels very timeless and classic to me. So, yeah, so me, um, yes, I did not watch this movie until a few years ago. And the first real thought I had about it was we were teaching Korean students uh, presentations and we were doing presentations on famous world cities and attractions and everything. And they all had to make these PowerPoint slides a bunch of students were doing Rome. And what I noticed was almost every group of students that did Rome for their presentation had pictures from Roman holiday in their, in their presentation. And would even, some of them even had like all the pictures in their PowerPoint were from Roman holiday. (laughs) And they were still telling about like, you know, Rome and doing a good job with their presentation, but they were like obsessed with Roman holiday. (laughs) And so I was like, what is this about? And you'd also see like sometimes in Korean hair salons on the exterior, you'd see pictures of Audrey Hepburn, like, um, I did a little research too, and I guess about at least in Japan, she was a fashion icon. So I think Korea would make sense that maybe she was there too. But people were definitely aware of her. And I'd really never seen this movie. Like, I think I had a problem with Audrey Hepburn for a while, like not as a person, but well, I guess unfairly a little bit as a person too, because I wanted Julie Andrews in My Fair Lady. <laughs> and I was like, she should have gotten that role. And also just I don't know, like she always seemed like such a cute, like kind of like childish pixie looking woman. And that's not something I related to. Mm -hmm. And so it was hard for me to get into her roles. And then when I finally did see Roman Holiday, I was like, "Ah, I'm not really sure I like this story. It's about a princess. Like it's it's like she seems like kind of she's fainting. She's like being taken care of by this older man. And I saw Breakfast at Tiffany's didn't like that at all. The stuff with the cat really bothered me. (laughs) We won't get into that. And then I saw funny face and I'm like, yeah, I mean, some parts of this are good, but like, again, it's this like really young woman with this much older man and it just wasn't my jam. But then doing the movie, like doing the movie for the podcast, I did get a new appreciation for this particular film. And I think it's because learning about some of the other creators involved with it and then learning a little bit more about Audrey Hepburn's life kind Mm -hmm. of made me more interested in the movie. But it's still not my natural kind of, it's still not my natural kind of rom-com. I really, I'm not into royalty stuff. Like it's like that will actually put a barrier up against me liking a movie. So I think you're kind of the opposite. Yeah. To talk about that later, the royal aspect. Yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I can see that. And that's, that's totally fair. Yeah. So I guess we've kind of told about our general opinion of the film already. So like, You, you love it. And I was like quite hesitant to being like 
more appreciative. I would still not say it's one of my favorites, but like there's just definitely aspects of the filmmaking that I appreciate a lot more now. For sure. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and do you want to say more about it or should I launch into some of the aspects of the filmmaking? Let's talk about that filmmaking. Okay. So first of all, when I found out it was director William Wyler, I was very excited because he's just one of, you know, the best Hollywood directors of all time. And you may never have heard of him if you don't watch older films, but he is the only director to have directed three best picture winners. So Mrs. Miniver, 1942, The Best Years of Our Lives, 1946, and Ben-Hur, 1959. And he also won best director for all three of those. And I've got to say, The Best Years of Our Lives, I think it's just like almost essential viewing. Uh, Really great story about what happens after a war with veterans. And he actually used um, somebody who had a real injury from the war as an actor in the movie, which was super cool. Wow. Yeah. He's also known for directing Wuthering Heights, 1939, The Big Country, 1958, which also has Gregory Peck, The Children's Hour, 1961, which also has Audrey Hepburn, How to Steal a Million, 1966, also with Audrey Hepburn, and Funny Girl in 1968. So yeah, he's done a wide range of pictures. And apparently he was a great director of actors. He First of all, he discovered Audrey Hepburn for this picture. Uh, she had been only in some bit parts previously. He directed Streisand in her first role. And Laurence Olivier said that Weiler taught him how to act for the screen. Whoa. And Betty, yeah. And Betty, <laughs> and Betty Davis said that he made her a better actress. So he has also directed more actors to Oscar nominations 36 nominations and wins, 14 wins than any other director. So that's a real testament. And another thing that I found interesting about him was that during World War II, he served as a major in the United States Army Air Forces, and he filmed two documentaries during that time, The Memphis Bell, A Story of a Flying Fortress, and he also directed Thunderbolt. And during the Memphis Bell documentary, he actually flew over enemy territory on bombing missions. And in, during Thunderbolt, he went deaf in one year doing that filming. So this wasn't just documentary filming. This was like action documentary filming, war yeah, documentary wow. filming. So he's just a fascinating guy. I also really appreciated the cinematography in this movie, which was nominated for an Oscar. It was two cinematographers working together, Henri Alecant. And he also worked on Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, 1946, which is a great movie. He also worked on Vim Vender's Winds of Desire in 1987. And the other cinematographer on the movie was Franz Planner. And then finally, this brings me to the creator that I was like so excited to learn about. So this like, I'm, I'm apologize if I talk too much about this, guys. In the show notes, you can always skip the creator section if you want to go on to more stuff about just the movie. But this writer, this writing situation blew my mind. The writing situation for this movie was created by the Hollywood Blacklist. The story for the movie was actually written by Dalton Trumbo. Dalton Trumbo was a member of the Hollywood 10. The Hollywood 10 was a group of, uh, I think it was mainly writers. They refused to cooperate with the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1947. The House Un-American Activities Committee was trying to find communists in Hollywood, uh, alleging that they were a threat to the nation. And they were bringing people up to testify about whether they were a communist and whether they knew other communists and they were trying to get people to name names. And it was a situation where like, if you refuse to cooperate, you were in more trouble than if you named names. If you name names, you might be allowed to act again or to write again. But if you refuse to cooperate as the Hollywood 10 did, uh, many of them received jail time. 
and Trumbo was one of them. Trumbo would not cooperate with the committee. He ended up serving 11 months in a federal prison for contempt of Congress, which is insane. Mm-hmm. And he actually was a communist, but you know that shouldn't matter. And he was mainly a communist. He was a communist in an era where uh, he was opposing fascism, Nazi fascism, and he was trying to work with labor unions. And he actually was quite in line with the politics of the time as a communist. You know, this was the New Deal era that was just preceding this. So it's just very, it was wild how quickly the pendulum swung. It's absolutely fascinating. Like, this is movies, you know what I mean? And to have this happen, and I mean, I don't know what's what's more strange, you know, being like, name names and call people. Isn't that what was happening with Nazis? You know, like, who's a Nazi who, or who's, you know, who's yeah. against Nazism so that we can put them in prison? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. this finger yeah. pointing and, you know, is just just wild. So all, but all the people who refused to cooperate were put on the blacklist and the blacklist was you weren't, you know, an unofficial thing in Hollywood where you weren't allowed to hire these people, you know, your movie would get boycotted by like the American Legion or something and like, you know, forget it. So Dalton Trumbo, after he got out of prison, he needed to find a way to make money. So he ended up writing a number of scripts under different names and Roman Holiday, he gave to his friend Ian McClellan Hunter And Ian McClellan Hunter sold the script under his name, sold the story under his name. And there's varying information out there, but I was able to find an account from Ian McClellan Hunter in a 1991 LA Times interview. And according to him, Trumbo wrote the story in a first draft. Hunter sold it under his name. And then Hunter did write some on the screenplay too. And Dighton did rewrites probably. Uh, Like at that point, the script was out of Hunter's hands too. So probably John Dighton did some rewrites on it as well. So it's just a really complicated authorship situation. So when the Oscar was announced for Roman Holiday, obviously Dalton Trumbo did not, was not able to accept it. Funny enough, Trumbo also won an Oscar during the blacklist period under the name Robert Rich for a movie called The Brave One in 1956. And he just kept like pumping out movies during that period and getting paid, but just under fake names. Eventually, though, he was able to get screen credit again, and sort of his getting screen credit again was kind of credited for ending the blacklist era. So he got he was able to get screen credit for Exodus uh, because Otto Preminger insisted on using his writing. And then he was able to get screen credit for Spartacus as well in 1960 because of Kirk Douglas's uh, insistence. So, you know, I think we should also remember these you know, other creators who helped make sure Dalton Trumbo could be back in the light again, really. Yeah. And then that also opened up Hollywood to like, you know, stop blacklisting other people, which is great. In all, in total, Dalton Trumbo wrote 71 screenplays. Some of them include 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Gun Crazy, Papillon. And he also wrote and directed Johnny Got His Gun in 1971, which was based on his own novel that he wrote. Like a long time ago, he wrote that novel before he was even a screenwriter. And eventually, Trumbo was given credit for his work. Uh, He got a posthumous Oscar in 1993, which was given to his widow. And the Writers Guild of America restored his screen credit in 2011. Seems like a long time to wait, but uh, (laughs) Writers Guild of America West President Chris Kaiser had this to say. It is not in our power to erase the mistakes or the suffering of the past, but we can make amends We can pledge not to fall prey again to the dangerous power of fear or to the impulse to censor, even if that pledge is really only a hope. 
And in the end, we can give credit where credit is due. So, you know, that's a good sentiment. I don't know. (laughs) You know, I think there's still like a certain pressure in Hollywood to have like certain political beliefs. And like, whereas I'm left wing and these days, I think right wingers would probably have more trouble in Hollywood. I still don't like that. Mm. I still think the quality of the work should matter more. I, I, so I think, yeah, the blacklist period uh, can be informative to us about just being careful not to condemn people for having different beliefs than us automatically and not to, you know, try to prevent people from working if they're not really actually doing harm with their work. I don't know. It makes it makes me worried, though. Well, I wonder, like, what communist agenda was happening in Roman Holiday. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. really? Um, yeah. I don't see it. Yeah, I definitely don't see it. I, other than like uh, Gregory Peck or Joe Bradley freely loaning money to Audrey Hepburn when she needs it. I mean, there you go. <laughs> Bastard. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting. And there's a great film right now on Netflix also called Trumbo. Uh, so that was released in 2015. So I super recommend that as well. So the creator that this is Roman Holiday is most associated with, though, is, of course, Audrey Hepburn. The more I learn about Audrey Hepburn, the more I like her. So even if I haven't liked all her films, like she's very admirable. She was born in 1929 in Belgium, and her parents were a Dutch noblewoman and a British father who was born in Austria-Hungary. And because she spent her childhood traveling around Europe, she spoke six languages, English, Dutch, French, German, Spanish, and Italian. Her dad left the family when she was only six years old, and her father doesn't sound like a great guy. He was working with fascist organizations, um, and yeah, he just left the family. She didn't see him again for years and years, and it was apparently a very traumatic experience for her. Um, She studied in England for a time, but her mother brought her back to the Netherlands because World War II was starting up, and she thought you know, England might be dangerous for her, and it turned out that England probably would have been better. So her original aspiration was to be a ballet dancer, but World War II, first of all, interrupted that. Uh, She didn't really have much training during that time, and she had malnutrition during the war. Like, uh, the malnutrition she experienced was so bad that they were grounding up tulip bulbs to make flour to make bread. Like, that's the kind of situation they were in. Mm. And. She saw she saw terrible things during the war. She saw Jewish people being deported to the camps to go in the to go to the trains. Uh, she became part of the Dutch resistance. She carried messages for them. She did dance performances to raise money for the resistance. And she had an uncle who was actually shot for alleged participation in the resistance activities, and a half brother who was sent to a labor camp. Um, yeah, it was a very stressful time, very traumatic time for her. And UNICEF and the Red Cross actually made a huge impression on her at a young age, because when they came to liberate the country, she was given, you know, a chocolate bar and food, you know, for the first time in a long time, like food that was, you know, sustenance. So that made a lifelong impression upon her. After the war, she did, she had to give up ballet for various reasons. The malnutrition was one of them. Uh, But she started taking small roles in screen and stage. During one of these small roles, Colette, the famous author, saw her filming in the south of France, and Colette handpicked her to appear as Gigi on Broadway, which was a huge deal, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a, it's a kind of a magnificent stroke of fate, I think. Yeah. That's a fairy tale unto itself being discovered right. like that. Yeah. yeah. And around the same time, William Wyler was looking for an unknown in, for Roman Holiday. She was only 24 when he found her and during filming. 
and her co-star Gregory Peck was 37. And her other famous roles, I'm sure our listeners know about a lot of these, but Sabrina, 1954, War and Peace, 1956, Funny Face, 1957, Breakfast at Tiffany's, 1961, The Children's Hour, 1961, Charade, 1963, My Fair Lady, 1964, Wait Until Dark, 1967. And then she didn't work for a while between 67 and 76 because she wanted to spend time with her family and her children, which I think is awesome. A hard choice, but awesome. And she did, after that, Robin and Marianne with Sean Connery. And her last movie appearance was in Always in 1989. And interestingly, Trumbo has a writing credit on that. Like maybe he wrote the first screenplay of that and then somebody else redid it, I think. So the most impressive thing to me about her is her UNICEF work. She was invited to be a UNICEF ambassador after attending a UNICEF concert where she spoke about her war experiences. And she took the role of UNICEF ambassador very seriously. Apparently, she studied each country she visited. She traveled all over. She met children, held them. And then she appeared in a lot of media advocating for the children. And apparently, five years after she joined UNICEF, because of her publicity and fundraising efforts, the organization had doubled in size. I mean, maybe not exclusively because of that, but they credit her with really helping the organization. And I love this quote from her about UNICEF and its work. Instead of there being a politicization of humanitarian aid, there will be a humanization of politics. Like that was her dream. And I love that. She died of cancer in 1993. And if you want to know more about her personal life and just like a lot of these facts came from this documentary, but there's more in it. There's a documentary on Netflix called Audrey right now. So I super recommend that. She's awesome. Yeah. It's it's an understatement, but she worked. She made great films and then stopped and, and did other things and, and did beautiful things. Yeah. Just what a, what a great person. Um, Gregory Peck also has a great reputation like of being just this caring, soft-spoken, yet this powerful presence and just a, a gracious human being, which, I don't know, it's just like this great love fest on this film of everyone <laughs> being just... <laughs> So kind and giving. Um, his first name, his real first name is actually Eldridge. Did I say that right? I don't know. It's it's spelled L- E-L-D-R-E-D. Eldridge. Who knows? Eldridge? And, it's a good and thing he, he got rid of it. Put it he that got way. rid of it because it was hard to say. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine in the trailer? Eldridge, oh. da-da-da-da. Yeah. <laughs> she meets Eldridge. Yeah, it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> good call. On Gregory Peck's part, he was born uh, April 5th, 1916, and he was initially a stage actor. Before that, he had previously pursued teaching in medicine. His first film credit is in 1944 in the lead role uh, in the film Days of Glory. And he had four Oscar nominations for Best Actor before Roman Holiday, um, The Keys of the Kingdom, The Yearling, Gentleman's Agreement, 12 o'clock high. And I really want to see Gentleman's Agreement. That one, like when I, I had heard about it before and then when I r- was reminded of it, I'm like, oh yeah, I always wanted to see that one. So maybe What's I'll it about? It. It's about um, a man who pretends, I don't know if he's a journalist again, but in some, for some reason he's pretending to be Jewish and to see what the experience of anti-Semitism in America is like. Ooh. Yeah. So he, he often did those, you know, issue pictures like about yeah. political situations yeah 
I love that. Um, other important roles before Roman Holiday include Spellbound in 1945, Duel of the Sun in 1946, The Gunfighter in 1950, and The Snows of Kilimanjaro in 1952. And f- as far as Roman Holiday goes, he specifically asked for top billing with Audrey Hepburn, even though it was originally going to be introducing Audrey Hepburn. Um, he recognized her talent and um if you have the DVD or we will have a link to this remembering Roman holiday kind of making of video on YouTube um, where he talks about it just being, it would, it would just be make no sense. It would just be ridiculous. If she was not top billing, you know, if she was just an introduction, it, he would say we would look foolish. So um, I just appreciate that and think that's lovely. And some important roles after Roman Holiday. Big Country in 1958, The Guns of Navarone in 1961, Cape Fear in 1962, and later took a supporting role in the 91 remake of Cape Fear. And then my favorite, To Kill a Mockingbird in 1962, which he won Best Actor for, The Omen in 1976, and The Boys from Brazil in 1978. And just to say that he was nominated for Best Actor a few times before winning for To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. That was his his winning role. And he died at the age of 87 in 2003. Yeah, great actor. And I'm kind of ashamed by how few of his films I've seen. So I got to get back into these old movies again. Okay, so I love Eddie Albert. I don't know why this took me until now to figure out who he was as I've watched Roman Holiday in the past, I'm like, man, that guy who plays Irving, he's been in everything. He's so familiar to me. What has he been in? Well, he really has been in everything. He had a huge career. Um and he's Green Acres. That's <laughs> what I know him from. <laughs> like does so that's who he is. Is he like the main guy in Green Acres? Yeah. Okay. And that's him. So he uh, is originally from Illinois. But guys, he grew up in Minneapolis. That makes me so happy. And he went to the U of M. Fantastic. He, I guess he studied business, but it was like the depression. So there was no business. And I want to know when you go to school for business, what then, and there's nothing to get into work-wise where you think, I'll go be a nightclub singer. I'll go be a trapeze performer. Cause I guess that's what he did before. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. And like, I think he sold insurance and stuff like that, do all kinds of odd jobs. Um, But he became one of the first television actors. And in 1936, he wrote and performed in the first teleplay called The Love Nest. And it was the first one like written specifically for television. Prior to that, it had been stage plays adapted for TV. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, and he was also in the U.S. Naval Reserve and was kind of a, a war hero. And um, you can go to like veterans, actor veterans website. And he's one of them. He rescued a bunch of people and was like under fire. So that's fantastic. And then he came back and continued acting. And so from 1948 to his retirement from acting at the age of 91, wow. um, he had a huge career in television, film, theater. He did a touring nightclub act with his performer wife. And yeah, kept acting till 91. And he died when he was 99. 
part of getting his role in Roman Holiday, he also worked with William Wyler previously in the film Carrie in 1952. And Wyler just felt like he was going to be perfect for this character of Irving. And I, I love this bit that um, uh, for part of his character development, Eddie Albert grew his hair a little bit longer and, and the beard, he grew the beard. And I guess that was like a big, whoa, wait, wait, a, you know, like contribution to his role. <laughs> Because <laughs> he was always clean shaven and like shorter okay. hair. And I, I dig it. I think it really works for this kind of bohemian, you know, freelance photographer dude living in Rome, you know, yeah. uh, it fits the character really well. So his other notable films and TV, Roman Holiday, which he was up for Best Supporting Actor nominee, The Heartbreak Kid in 1972. He was also up for Best Supporting Actor. 1965 to 1971 for Green Acres, and then the film The Longest Yard in 1974. Cool. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize he'd done so many things. That's awesome. Tons. Tons hmm. and tons and tons. Okay, so those were our amazing creators. And yeah, we took a long time on them because they're special. So just <laughs> I hope you I hope you enjoyed it. Give us feedback if you think we should lay off a little bit, but but I hope oh, yeah. I love, I love learning about these people. So Roman Holiday was a very influential movie in several ways. As we mentioned, it began Audrey Hepburn's career, and it also made Audrey Hepburn into a fashion icon, like almost immediately. So 1950s actresses uh, tended to be more full figured, like a Marilyn Monroe type. So Audrey Hepburn was just like a real, you know, a change, and. They, she has what's called a gamine look, which is sort of slim and elegant. Like even if you if you Google the word gamine, it there's a picture of Audrey Hepburn. I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. So and she played these kind of innocent, inexperienced, like adolescent type roles, even though she was already an adult. And she was just great at carrying off fashion, partially because she had dance training. She just walked so gracefully. Edith Head, the costume designer, said. Her figure and flair told me at once that here was a girl who'd been born to make designers happy. So, <laughs> and she, yeah, she had a close working relationship with the designer Hubert Givenchy, and she was one of the first actresses to have a designer who she had a relationship with like that, where he would design clothes for her movies. And she was, like I mentioned, pretty huge in Japan at the time. So a lot of women copied her haircut. Uh, right after the movie's release. And like when I was in Korea, like I said, you would see Audrey Hepburn stuff all over the place. And it was very strange to me because I'm like, wow, that was a long time ago. People still have <laughs> pictures of her up or still care about this movie. So it's pretty cool. And the movie also really in influenced um, Vespa sales. So they ride in the Vespa scooter in the movie. And apparently they sold 500,000 Vespa scooters within three years of the film's release. And that was the same amount sold in the previous six years. So they basically, I guess, doubled their sales. Would that be? Yeah, that's incredible. I, <laughs> I really, I think that's fantastic. <laughs> and I've seen it listed as the first American film shot entirely in Italy. But then I've seen other things that said it was one of the first American films shot in Italy. So we'll go with one of the just in case. But it also contributed to the what is called the Hollywood on the Tiber phase in Hollywood filmmaking. So Hollywood on the Tiber just refers to the period in the 1950s and 60s when many American films were shot in Rome on location and often at the Cinecitta film studios. So this phrase was begun basically by the film Quo Vadis from 1951, which was a historical epic. 
And a journalist coined the phrase Hollywood and the Tiber about, you know, that film. And the Tiber obviously refers to the, well, maybe not obviously, it refers to the river that runs through, through Rome. And Weiler really wanted to film on location. He really pushed for it. He also wanted to film in color, but the studio was not going to let him have both. The studio said he could film on location using blocked funds. So blocked funds mean like funds that the studio had to spend in a foreign country because they came from receipts from movies in that country, which those countries had not allowed the studios to use outside of the country. It's very complicated to me mm-hmm. in my mind, but mm-hmm. like basically the studio had to, fil- had to spend money in that country to get that money back. So, but this was not a lot of money for Weiler to use. So he saved money by filming in black and white. And I've kind of mixed feelings about that. I think the movie would have been so gorgeous in color, but my husband said he really appreciated the black and white. He said it made it feel timeless. And they had such great cinematographers who have done other great work in black and white. So I guess you didn't lose too much having such great cinematographers on the case. What do you think? Yeah, I I can go both ways. It, I love it as it is, but I could definitely, uh, I feel like it would have helped Rome be more vibrant to me. Um, because you know, for a lot of these scenes where they're on these locations, it just, it's a stone, you know, black and white. Like if I knew it was in color, I'd be like, Oh yeah, that's the forum. Um, so, but I, I, I would leave it as it is. Because while Rome is beautiful and whatnot, like this, it's the story of these two people that I care the most about. See, interestingly, I think the stones might be more interesting in black and white. I kind of have a different opinion. Oh, I feel like if, if it was in color, you might only be looking at the actors or their clothes or like, you know, bright things. Whereas in black and white, the stone can sometimes be the most interesting textured thing in the, in the shot, like where they, they focus on the mouth of truth, for example. Anyway. Uh, it was in black and white basically because it was shot in Rome. And so the two kind of went together. And then um, the Hollywood on the Tiber phase kind of continued with other films shot at Chinechita. And they included Three Coins in the Fountain, 1954, which is in color. So that has scenes in Rome and oh, other wow. parts of Italy. So, and then uh, War and Peace in 1956, which Audrey Hepburn also appeared in. Ben-Hur in 1959, which I believe I said was one of Weiler's. Helen of Troy in 1956. Francis of Assisi in 1961, Cleopatra, the infamously kind of over budget film in 1963, and The Agony and the Ecstasy in 1965. So this was a really interesting period of film. And it also kind of kicked off just an American fascination with, you know, Italy mm-hmm. and Rome. So and that fascination seems to continue. And maybe it has been there for a long time. Like there are so many romantic films like set in Italy. Yeah. So we were we were both adding examples like I added like Under the Tuscan Sun, Chasing Liberty, Eat, Pray, Love, A Room with a View, Letters to Juliet, Call Me by Your Name, Three Coins in the Fountain. And then you added a couple too, like Only You and For Rosanna. Um, yeah. But I was definitely thinking of Under the Tuscan Sun and Letters to Juliet, all of that as well. And I love that you because I was totally thinking Shakespeare, too. I'm like, well, Shakespeare, man. And you put that in there. Yeah, well. like our fascination with Italy seems to go a long way back. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you've got oh. Romeo and Juliet in Verona and uh-huh. Pat, the Shrew in Padua, Much Ado About Nothing in Messina. I saw this thing and it said a third of Shakespeare's plays were set in Italy. That's wild. I've been to Verona and here it is, this story that's made up, these 
people weren't real. Like you go to Verona and there's this little statue of Juliet that everybody touches her boob. And so it's polished, shiny. And there's a balcony that you can go up and be like, look, I'm on the balcony. That was her balcony. It's not her balcony. It's nobody. I don't know whose balcony it is, but like, this is such a tourist attraction <laughs> because it's, it's just so famous. I would also add uh, another film. It's old. It's from 91. It's, um, that's not old. <laughs> <laughs> Enchanted April. Did you ever see Enchanted oh, yeah. April? Yeah. Uh, yeah it's based on a novel too, though, which is an older novel, I believe. So yeah. There you go. Yeah. They're show, you know, rainy, gloomy England and they run away to sunny Italy. Makes maybe, sense. Yeah, maybe yeah. that's part of it. Like the sun is part of like the romance, maybe the the feeling of letting go and abandon and not having well, to be th- up. I was thinking about uh, definitely I could definitely do that, but I like why not Portugal then? You know what I'm saying? Like nobody runs away to Portugal and I'm wondering, and not that Portugal isn't beautiful or doesn't have history, but I wonder if because it's got so much history and influence influence, that that's part of the charm. I'm going to pin it on Shakespeare. (laughs) I'm down with that. Sure. So some basic facts about Rome. It's the capital of Italy. And the Tiber River runs through the city. It was established April 21st. Um, How do we know that April 21st? I don't know. Um, In 753 BC. And according to legend, Romulus and his twin brother Remus founded Rome on the site where they suckled by um, a she-wolf as orphaned infants. Totally happened. Totally, totally (laughs) happened. And, And it's... Romulus because he and his brother had some dispute about where they should build this city and and um, Romulus killed Remus and then named the city Roma after himself. Wow. Great. What a great foundation. And the Roman Empire dates. So we're jumping around here. This is a huge history. Okay. So we're making some leaps. Go with it. Um, Roman Empire dates from 27 BC through 470 6 AD, Augustus Caesar announced himself the first emperor in 31 BC, and the empire ended with the fall of Constantinople in 1453 CE. And CE is the same as AD, right? I believe. I think so. Yeah. I don't know why there's two different ways of expressing that. In 1871, Italy is united as one country because Rome had previously been a separate state and Rome was made the capital. In 1922, Mussolini took over, and during World War II, uh, it was bombed, but declared an open city, giving up all defenses to avoid further destruction on August 14, 1943, and Allies took over the city in June 4, 1944. In 1946, the Italian Republic formed, and women gained the right to vote. Heck yeah. yeah. You know what's so interesting to me about this, though, this movie, was when I was watching it, just realizing that it was shot so soon after World War II. Yeah. You know? Yeah, like, for real. Everyone everyone in that movie had probably had that in their mind on some level. And it's quite amazing that they were able to make it so that Rome didn't get bombed, you know, and to do the open city because think of all the things that could have been destroyed, really. <sighs> we're going to talk a little bit now. We're going to we're going to try kind of a new thing. We're going to try to talk about some of the locations in Roman Holiday while also giving you a little something about the story in Roman Holiday. 
And at some point during this description, we will start a spoiler section. We will give you a warning on that. So this movie is really, Rome is a star of the movie too. Like in the opening credits, even there's just like shots of different famous places in Rome and really striking. Weiler really took advantage of the location shooting. And it seemed like kind of almost like a loving travelogue of a trip to Rome. And I felt really, I got the feeling like I was traveling vicariously with Princess Anne on her, you know, fun Roman holiday. So Sophia's going to tell us a little bit about where Princess Anne is at the beginning of the movie. So her, there's the uh, ball scene, the ballroom scene, and her bedroom um, was filmed at the Palazzo Bancaccio. (laughs) And it's beautiful. So that was used as the palace. And right, it's still a palace and it's but it's used for weddings and uh an events venue so you can go and see that still so she's you know like i said there's this kind of ball where she's meeting all these dignitaries and and we have that scene and then it's her bedroom scene where you know she's going through her agenda with her secretary lady in waiting and she's just she breaks down you know having to be like yes no thank you charmed i'm sure and the whole deal and she's exhausted she's been on a tour of all these countries and she's at her wits end and um they bring in the doctor and he gives her some sleeping medicine i was also really struck by at the ball where she's meeting all the dignitaries how they they show her feet under her gown where she's Mm -hmm. trying to take her feet out of these high heels and like just relax her feet and then she loses one of her shoes it's kind of like the first like sign that this this is not working for her right now yeah and that it's such a big deal like i get and here's where the fun comedy bit comes in like the you know somebody sees that the shoe is you know out and and they're and they're trying to contact each other by you know looking at it with their big eyes and they're like yeah. get the thing and so to save her from embarrassment uh one of the gentlemen comes up and asks her to dance so she's hardly got to yeah. sit down yeah. and rest her tired feet and i i do wonder about that i'm like how do these people walk around in heels in these parades all the time i can't So the interior, as Sophia said, was shot in the Palazzo Bancaccio, but the exterior of Princess Anne's, I guess, embassy, yeah, where she's staying, is filmed at the Palazzo Barberina. We are guessing on these pronunciations, but I think think we're right. Um, And that is a Renaissance palace that was built in 1633, and today it holds the Galleria Nazionale Arte Antica. So I think that would translate roughly to the National Gallery of Ancient Art or Old Art. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, it's a a museum now. The story then takes us, uh, Anne has snuck out of the embassy, but her sleeping pills have kicked in. And so she lays down by these ruins in Rome, the Roman Forum. And it's at the northwest end near the Ark of Septimus Severus and the Temple of Saturn. And this is where Joe discovers her and tries to get her to wake up and puts her in a cab and tries to get the cabbie to take her. And he's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I can take her to the police. Um, yeah. And she is so lucky. I got to put in here. She is so lucky that he finds her, that Joe Bradley finds her because like, come on, like how many unsavory people would take advantage of a lady in that state? And she gets Joe Bradley Yes. The, the American journalist instead. Very. Can you okay. imagine the story it would have been? Oh my God. Like, it would have been like, yeah. this story. It's <laughs> a completely different 
Good thing they kept. I'm glad it stayed this story. <laughs> it was very close to being a tragedy. <laughs> it was. It can turn at any time. I'm glad it didn't turn. <laughs> yeah, and so Joe realizes he's going to have to deal with this girl himself if he wants her to be okay. So he takes her back to his apartment, which is at the Via Marguda 51, which is a street in Rome, kind of a famous street. Sophia, you, you said that you looked it up on um, Google, Google Maps. Maps. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's it's the street and then you go into a little like courtyard as they have in Europe and they're beautiful. And so it looks like a series of, of apartments. And then there was a little art gallery as well. Nice. And it's located, the Via Marguda is kind of in the tourist center of the city. It's located between the Piazza di Spagna and the Piazza del Popolo. And Federico Fellini also used to live on the Via Marguda at 110. So there's tourists still come, you know, to look both at his house and to look at Via Marguda 51. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, I would do it. I'd stand there, get my picture. (laughs) Um, And this fountain, the Trevi Fountain. So in the film, uh, Princess Anne is getting her hair cut across the street from the fountain. And at this point... um, is Joe with her? No, he's he's sneaking up behind her, but he has not said hi yet. Okay. And he wants to get a camera. And there's this tourist group of girls. Looks like, you know, brownies or something. And and he goes to one of the little girls. He's like, hey, n- n- nice camera. Can I, can I take your camera? And she's like, no. And he's like no. pulling on the camera too, isn't he? He's like grabbing <laughs> at the camera. Something like that. It was so um, weird. <laughs> It's silly. Well, that girl, and then there's another girl that's like, oh, teacher, um, you know, look what's happening. Those two girls are the director's daughters. Nice. And um, so that's their little moment of fame. I thought that was fun. Um, but the fountain itself is the largest Baroque fountain in Rome. And the legend is that if you turn your back to the fountain and throw a coin over your left shoulder, you'll return to Rome. Two coins, you'll fall in love. Three, you'll marry. Oh. And and hence the title of the movie, Three Coins in a Fountain. That's what that's about. Yeah. And let me tell you another weird thing. There's a replica of the Trevi Fountain in the city I used to live in in South Korea. So the Lotte Lotte department store, like the basement of that in in Busan, in in Samyon, the neighborhood Samyon in Busan. If you go to the basement, there's a replica of the Trevi Fountain. It's very small, but like, it's really pretty well done. It was pretty wild. So yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so we're, we got a clip now of where after Anne goes and gets her hair cut to this really nice short hairstyle, which I think is quite attractive. I don't think I can pull it off, but I like it. What do you think? Mm-hmm. It's adorable, but yeah, I couldn't do it either. <laughs> I think you could do it better than me, but yeah. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> and then, but at, Joe, like, then uh, Anne goes and she gets some gelato, and Joe kind of pretends that he's just run into her, and this is part of the little dialogue they have at that point. Why don't you take a little time for yourself? Maybe another hour. Live dangerously. Take the whole day. I could do some of the things I've always wanted to. Like what? Oh, you can't imagine. I'd, I'd like to do just whatever I like the whole day long. <laughs> Things like having a haircut, eating gelato. Yes, and I'd, I'd like to sit at a sidewalk cafe and look in shop windows, walk in the rain, have fun and maybe some excitement. Doesn't seem much to you, does it? It's great. 
tell you what. Why don't we do all those things? Together. But don't you have to work? Work? Now. Today is going to be a holiday. But you don't want to do a lot of silly things. Don't I? First wish, one sidewalk cafe coming right up. <laughs> That's kind of a charming bit of dialogue, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's just so... Oh. And looking shops. You know, sidewalk shops and... A little bit of excitement. It's so funny to me. It's like, you know, over the top, but so charming at the same time. But these, this staircase, this piazza de España, the so Spanish steps. The piazza is not the staircase, though. That's the name for the, sorry, that's the name for the square at the bottom of the steps. Okay. That wasn't clear to me. Thank yeah. you. Sorry. Uh, so that's okay. So she, that's where she's eating her gelato. And it's named from a Spanish embassy that was once nearby. It's 135 steps and the widest and longest staircase in Europe. How about that? I would do it. Oh, Anne has changed her name as Anya Smith. Um, and she has told Joe the story that she's, you know, left school and she's hanging out with Joe. Irving has come on the scene. Joe called Irving to come take photographs. And with his tiny little like uh, cigarette lighter camera, which I really like. That was very James oh, Bond touch to this whole thing. Yes. Movie. Yes. Very <laughs> spy camera. It's fantastic. And I like what you said here. Joe tells uh, Anne that he's a fertilized salesman. <laughs> yeah, fertilizer salesman. Like, yeah, Joe, Joe tells Anne that he's like a fertilizer salesman. And it occurred to me that, like, that's hilarious because it kind of would imply that he's selling shit. Like, some yes. Because, like, fertilizer isn't always shit, but sometimes it is. And, mm-hmm. and so, like, I was like, yeah, I think that was on purpose. And he's always doing that. He's always BSing people in the whole movie. He BSs his boss, like, pretends that he was at this, you know, princess viewing that he didn't go to, yeah. like, because she wasn't there. Like, yeah, I, I love it. He's he's full of bullshit the whole movie, and he tends to be a fertilizer salesman. Oh, and then there's that really funny bit of business, too, in this scene where, like, Irving does not know that he's not supposed to recognize the princess. Yeah. And so Joe has to keep kicking him and spilling things on him to prevent him from, like, revealing that he's a photographer and that Joe's a journalist and that, like, she looks like. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, I agree. A little corny, but hilarious. Yep, yep. Um, and they go to a cafe. Oh, that's already at the cafe. They're at the cafe, and she has her first cigarette. And that cafe these days is a store. It's a fashion store. You can't go to that cafe. That sucks. Yeah, then you, you see them start to ride around Rome on a scooter, and you see them ride past the Colosseum, and then you see them visiting the Colosseum as tourists, And the Colosseum, most people know about the Colosseum already, but like just to review, it's the largest ancient amphitheater ever built. It was finished in 80 AD. And it, of course, was used for public spectacles like gladiatorial battles, animal fights, executions, all that exciting stuff. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then they get back on the scooter and (laughs) she tries, she drives. Yeah. And she's not a good driver. And, um, it's, yeah, she, it's the, yeah, her and Cher from Clueless. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's the police following them, and they get arrested. Well, they get taken to the police station, and they get out of being arrested because Joe shows them his journalist papers. Yeah, um, and and they claim that they're uh, on their way to get married. 
And I um, liked how they did this scene without sound where you don't hear that. You just, they're miming the explanation. They play like the little dun, 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 dun marriage music when he's telling that part. And like, I like it because like, I feel like that would have been a really tedious explanation otherwise. What yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think it's really sweet the way they, they do it. You get, you get, you, without words, you get what's happening and yeah. and it's meant to be funny and yeah, gets the job done. In a very playful way. And then they happen upon the mouth of truth. Ooh, I love this part. <laughs> and it's this, uh, it's a stone disc with a human-like face and an open hole at the mouth. It's dated about 100 AD and the purpose is unknown, probably represents a pagan god. And it's located in a portico at Santa Maria in Cosmodine, where you can also see St. Valentine's skull. <laughs> um, but the legend is if you, uh, if liars put their hand in the mouth and you tell a lie, your hand gets chopped off. Um, and or it goes back. Off, like the mouth bit. bites or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 They do it. They go to put their hand in. Uh, she goes to put her hand and she can't do it. And <laughs> Joe puts his hand in and um, I can tell this part now, too. In the film, um, Gregory Peck and William Wyler had worked it out. Uh, Gregory Peck had remembered a, a Red Skelton bit where he puts his hand up his sleeve and then he goes to shake hands with people and there's no hand. He's like, I'm going to I'm going to do that bit. And but let, they didn't tell uh, Audrey Hepburn. So mm -hmm. the shot was done in one take and he pulls his hand out or he pretends that it's being chopped off. He starts to scream and she starts to scream and then he pulls the hand out and it's up the sleeve and she screams and, and falls into his arms and they laugh and they hug. And that's all one take all improvised, which I love because it's, hmm. it's so sweet and fantastic. And, and that might be my favorite scene. Well, one of my favorite scenes is is the next scene. They go and they visit something called the Wall of Wishes. And it was a place. And I, okay, I can't verify that this place was a place. I could only find sort of rumors on online. But it's a nice idea for a place, whether or not it actually existed. But it's a place where people put up plaques with wishes that have been granted. And the in the movie, they say it was after a family sheltered by that wall during an air raid and prayed to live. And then they survived the air raid. And that's why people would put the plaques there. And so like Joe tells her the story or Irving does, one of them does. And then she looks at some of the plaques. And I just thought this was a really cool scene because it's one of those parts of the movie that reminds you of how close this was to World War II, where so many people died and, you know, the world had gone through this tumultuous time and here they are on this beautiful holiday. But like, let's still remember, you know, what just happened. So I thought that was a really touching scene. And then they make at that point, okay, we're now going to go into the spoilers okay section, everybody. Like, we're because we're nearing the end of the movie. All right. And we don't want to ruin things for you. So if you want to get out, get out now. And they're at this, they're at this wall of wishes, and, and Anne expresses the desire to go dancing that night. The barber who cut her hair had told her about and invited her to dancing at a place called Castle Sant'Angelo, a barge near there. And they decide to go. And today the barge is no longer there. Um, so you can't do that. But you can still visit the Castle Sant'Angelo. I forget what was there. Do you know what was there? Was it a museum again? 
probably. Yeah. Sometimes. Everything's a museum. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, they go dancing, but then bodyguards get sent to find Anne and try to take her back to the palace. And this is like also one of my favorite scenes. How about you? Yeah, I love it too. I love this idea of, you know, dancing at this river barge with those lights. And in fact, we've made our backyard a little bit like this because I wanted it to look like from the film where we have Greg built a kind of a floating uh, deck. And then we have those outdoor bulb lights. And it makes me think of this part of the movie. (laughs) Wait, floating deck is it like floating on water or what is a floating? No, deck? it's just it's just like a step off the okay. the, the ground. But they, I've heard them called floating decks. It's just it's okay, not like attached to the house. It's not. Yeah, I'm um, not up on my deck vocabulary, so I was yeah, yeah, barge out in your backyard, and I was like, I gotta see this. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? So I have my little dancing deck with nice. my fun lights, and and then it just becomes this fun. Uh, fight scene and oh, yeah. and that's hilarious yeah and i thought it was really cool that like everybody's like participating like joe is helping her fight off the bodyguards irving is helping her and then the barber helps her too <laughs> like she had been dancing with the barber for a little while and then she actually hits one of them with a guitar which i'm like oh that poor person's guitar i'm always thinking about so, things like no, this i'm movies. with you i'm with you i'm like no it's livelihood <laughs> Yeah. So then Joe and um and Anne end up jumping into the river because they're kind of at a dead end where they're gonna get caught by the security guards otherwise. And after they get out of the river, they're sitting on some kind of embankment and they kiss, and that's their, you know, first kiss scene. And most likely the first time she's ever kissed anyone. Yeah. How sweet. And then they go back to his apartment and dry off and she's wearing his clothes again she was wearing his pajamas earlier and she expresses a desire to cook for him um but then they hear the radio report about her people being concerned for her health and she knows that she's got to return to the palace and um joe goes with her but they stop a little bit before the gates because she doesn't want him to see where she's going um even though he knows and they say their goodbyes, kiss again, and off she goes. Yeah. <laughs> so sad. And then the next the next day, um, Joe's boss comes by and like Joe has decided he's not gonna run the story on Anne. So he's pretending to his boss that he doesn't know anything about a princess and like, no, like I don't have anything, like I don't have any story. And then Irving comes by and with the pictures, and he's <laughs> like, Hey, you gotta see these pictures of Smitty, which is their nickname for Anne, and like and then Joe has to again like spill like spill things on Irving and kind of kick him around like to get him to shut up because he doesn't want to do the story anymore. And the boss is all disgruntled. He's like, "I know you guys have something. What are you doing?" And like, and it's a pretty funny scene as well. Yeah. And then we get to the last scene uh, at the Palazzo Colonna Gallery, which is today a museum. But this is where uh, Anne does a press conference with all the press and. Joe and Irving go and Joe makes a comment implying that her secret is safe with them. And then Anne asks to greet the press, uh, which she had not previously ever done before. It was in protocol, but she goes and, you know, shakes hands and she gets to Joe and Irving and Irving gives her the pictures of their day together. And they say their goodbyes. 
And Joe walks down this long gallery that, you know, since the museum, you can go and be in that gallery. Yeah. And so we're also going to include, we've done this whole kind of tour of the sites they went to kind of verbally, but we'll also include a link to has that has a sample tour of Roman holiday sites in the show notes. So if you want to look at that for yourself, for your own reference, maybe in the future when we can all travel again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Sophia uh, has looked at some, oh, do you have something more to say? Yeah, I was just going to say, I added some places I would go if I were to go to Rome. Um, And I have with exclamations, the Sistine Chapel. Oh my gosh, I would go to the Sistine Chapel and I would go to the Pantheon. And then, okay, this was really great. Near the Spanish steps that we talked about where they film and it's got to go see these steps. On either side of it, on one side, you can go to the Keats Shelley Memorial House and it's this like library and um, I mean you can even go online now and go through old letters between like Keats and um, Fanny Braun and manuscripts and letters of all these romantic poets that lived in Rome which I think is so cool and then on the other side of the of the staircase is this Tea Room, Babington's Tea Room that was established by two British women in 1893 that survived all of that, all the wars and what have you. And it was a place for like visiting Brits and kind of Mm. uh, it's a little it's it's still there and you can go and have lunch and a tea and catacombs that are four stories underground in the city. I would also go to St. Peter's Basilica. And okay, I was like, where was Da Vinci in out of Italy? Florence, really, but there is this place called the Leonardo da Vinci Experience Museum, and it's like five stories, and each story has something different about da Vinci, where they've, it's an interactive museum, and they've created his inventions, and you can, like, touch them and, like, make them work and stuff like that. Like, that sounds like a lot of fun, and I think that, like, my kid would enjoy that. If I were to go with my, yeah, and then... Here's something that I also think is very cool. They have a floor with all of his paintings reproduced um, with the same kind of paints and paper materials from 500 years ago. Um, Like all of his works redone in one space, which I think is also very cool. That Um, is cool. Yeah. So it might kind of be tourist trappy, but it could also be worthwhile. So anyway, those are just things I would add onto my visiting Rome list. And like, I was going to say that probably one of the main things to do in Rome would be to eat the food, but I was looking at the local foods and they're like, as a vegan, probably not the best for me, but I was thinking, but I was, we were, we've been thinking about maybe doing Eat, Pray, Love and it's making me want to do Eat, Pray, Love more as in the travel series. (laughs) Just so we can talk about some of the foods, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I'm I'm done with that. So, um, so leaving the the location, which is amazing. I one thing I was observing when I was rewatching Roman Holiday was that it's kind of a coming of age story. So we previously mentioned that, like near the beginning, Princess Anne is kind of throwing a tantrum, and I have a clip of the tantrum, and I may or may not include it depending on how loud it is. <laughs> so I don't want to break your eardrums, but I'm going to play that clip right now. 11.45, back here to rest. No, that's wrong. 11.45, conference here with the press. Sweetness and decency. One o'clock sharp, lunch with the foreign ministry. You will wear your white lace and carry a bouquet of very small pink roses. 
305, presentation of a plaque. Thank you. 410, review special guard of carabinieri police. No, thank you. 445, you back do? here to change oh, your uniform so to meet the international... No! Oh! Good no, no, no. It's all right, dear, it didn't spill. I don't give it spilled or not. I don't give it drowned in it. My dear, you're ill. I'll send for Dr. Bonacoba. I don't want Dr. Bonacoba. Please let me die in peace. You're not dying. Leave me. Leave me. It's nerves. Control yourself, Anne. I don't want to. Your Highness. So, yeah. So at the beginning, she's having this kind of like tantrum in reaction to her duties and kind of like a breakdown. And like, I don't want to say that that's totally like an immature thing. Like, I think it's supposed to be like seen as an immature thing. But like, you know, as adults, we sometimes break down, too. Like, I have my toddler moments. (laughs) Yeah, I never thought of it as a tantrum, Um, but more of like a exhausted breakdown, like day in, day out expected to you know thank you no thank you charmed and you know but the way she's expressing herself is kind of like she's flailing around in bed and Mm. screaming so that's why i kind of read it as like like a tantrum like her body language even is very you know like when you're older you might just refuse to do something or you might just say go away leave me alone we're not talking you might use more words but she's expressing herself in just like a scream Mm. you know so, but in terms of like my reading as a coming of age story though, so you have her having this breakdown and then she goes out of the palace. And one of the first things she does is she gets her hair cut from this like very long girlish hair. Like in the past, especially having your hair long and down was kind of what younger people would do. Mm. Like you wouldn't wear your hair up until you were older in, in many cultures. And she, and she gets this stylish shortcut. She looks at the, the barber window and there's all these like elegant, sophisticated ladies, independent ladies with their short haircuts. And she sees one of those ladies come out of the barber. And then she decides right then, like, I'm going to cut this hair off. So that's her first step, I think, towards like coming of age. And then when she's with Joe, she has her first cigarette, you know, one of her first things. Uh, she does her first time driving, I would think, if that's how she's driving. Yeah. She had just spent her first time alone with a man the night before. And and then later she has her first kiss with Joe, I would imagine. And they even fake get married. Like they even pretend that they're going to get married. Like they don't really get married, of course, but they tell people they're getting married, which is kind of a symbolic step towards growth. And then finally, like they're in Joe's apartment when she uh, before she hears that announcement about like her people are worried about her. And she's expressing to Joe that, oh, I want to cook for you. I know how to sew. I know how to, you know, clean house. I know how to do all this stuff. I've just never had a chance to do it before. And he's like, oh, maybe I need to move to a new house with a kitchen. And it's like there, she's expressing the desire to, to, to step into what in the 1950s would have been the mature woman's role. Mm. And, but instead she realizes she can't do that. And she has to, has her duty to the country instead, which is also maturity, though, because she is at that moment making a choice to return to her duty. She's not just doing what other people tell her, going along with what she's instructed to do, giving the correct answers. She's making a choice to take on her role. And when she returns then to the palace, she refuses the milk and crackers. Uh, she sends her attendants away. Uh, she won't answer their questions about where she's been. And then finally, at the press conference, when they ask her, what is the part of your tour you've enjoyed the most? Like, she's supposed to be like, 
each in their own way was beautiful. But instead, she finally says, Rome, you know, Rome was the best place. She gives her own answer. She starts to show her own authenticity. And I think all these things are a sign of her growth and her coming of age. And I think when I saw the story as a coming of age story more than a romance, I appreciated it more in a way. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And yeah. And then another way to look at it too, it can be also be seen as like a reverse Cinderella in a way, because instead of Cinderella trying to escape or escape poverty for wealth, she's trying to escape wealth and pretending to be a commoner and she's needing to borrow money and relying on strangers. And she even references Cinderella at one point, but she references kind of funnily. Like she says, at midnight, I'll turn into a pumpkin and drive away in my glass slipper. I don't think anyone drives in a slipper in Cinderella, but that's the dialogue from the movie. Yeah. And, and then Gregory Peck's character goes, that'll be the end of the fairy tale. And sort of like Cinderella, she also has an expiration date for her journey. Although in the end, Cinderella gets the prince and she gets to be the princess. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course roman holiday has this ending of like the lovers not ending up together so how do you like how do you feel about romantic comedies or romances that have the characters not ending up together in general or how do you feel it works in this one uh for this one i feel it works i mean we've had this moment of fairy tale where she you know gets to spend the day runs away from the castle and has her own day um, it would have been less believable, quote unquote, if all of a sudden she brings Joe back to the palace with her and be like, we're getting married, you know, like, <laughs> uh, then I would have really ruled my, I wouldn't have liked it as much. Like mm -hmm. that won't work at all. Um, I think it's more true that a person can meet somebody and have a connection and fun and what have you in a day and know that you're going to, you know, you got to go home or go back to where you came from or what have you. But like that connection and that love is, is like a memory you have forever. You know, um, I feel like I've had those in my youth. I don't remember at the moment, haven't been dwelling on any of that, but I, 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 I think it's way more real. And mm -hmm. what she learned that day and all the examples that you gave of like having a coming of age and asserting some independence and stuff like that will serve her well as she goes on to be princess and like a leader and stuff like that. Yeah. And Did I like you see it as a sad ending? Did you see it as sad or like, or does it seem upbeat to you? A little of both. Like, oh, too bad it couldn't go on. But bittersweet. How about that? Yeah. A little bit of sweetness, a little bit of sadness. Yeah, I kind of agree with you that it's the only ending I can really see for the movie. It seems inevitable, which is like the mark of the best kind of ending where where it feels like, yeah, this is what had to happen. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the reasons I accept it, though, is that I didn't feel so much chemistry between them. I didn't feel like they had to be together. I didn't feel like mm. it broke my heart. I I'm I tend to be the person who's like no love conquers all we're not gonna like let anything get in the way of being in a relationship and so I think if in a movie where like the characters just seem so passionate about each other or so like just completely compatible I might have been more resistant but I'm like no why can't she just stop being a princess like but <laughs> but it worked for me in this case because they didn't really know a ton about each other I mean they were both lying to each other the entire day so right I know that sounds it's probably sacrilegious of me in terms of movie fans but 
Yeah. No, I think that's okay. <laughs> they didn't know a lot about each other, but the time that they did have was really lovely and they yeah. had an attraction and and it was very special, you know? Yeah. And that's yeah. good enough. Like that was their relationship. Had it tried to go on, like I said, you know, I don't know that I would have believed that. Yeah. I totally. believe what they had that day. Okay, so let's see. Moving on, like one of the one of the things I noticed about this movie right away is that it's a movie about royalty or like sort of a princess movie. And there do seem to be a lot of like movies in the rom-com genre that are mm-hmm. associated with royalty. So there's your like favorite, The Prince and Me. Well, not favorite, but one of your favorites, The Prince and Me. Um, you've got like The Princess Switch, The Princess Diaries, A Prince for Christmas, My Summer Prince, Ever After, Enchanted, A Royal Christmas. There's like a whole bunch of sequels to all the aforementioned movies, some of them. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. like you look into Hallmark movies, it's just like out of control. It's it's like <laughs> it's like wild. And like they're not my favorite so much, but like they seem it seems to be like you like them more. Like, is that am I representing you correctly? Do you like kind of the royalty movies more? It's got to be a good one. Does that make sense? Like, I think The Prince and Me tells a good story. And in its uh, complete far-fetchedness, there's something that I can accept and believe and be good. And same thing with Roman Holiday. I don't like um, those Princess Christmas movies. I watched (laughs) one and it was torture. And there was no way that I was going to watch the seven sequels afterwards. And um, so... Then yeah, it's got to be good <laughs> okay, so <let> me <laughs> for me to this. indulge in a princessy fairy tale kind of story. Let me ask you this then: if the prince and me was instead like the CEO and me, and it was like some CEO of a large corporation who left the company instead, or like left their inheritance, or like, would you still like that movie, or is the prince part of it? Um, I'm on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I think the prince part of it because I like the part where Paige goes to his country and here's why I put the Prince and me as a double feature with Roman holiday. Cause that scene when Anne is in her bed after she's been given the sleeping pill, she's laying in bed there and she looks up at the ceiling and the four corners of her ceiling have these carvings of angels. And they're just, you know, she's just kind of looking and in the Prince and me, when Paige wakes up in the palace, she looks at the ceiling and kind of puts her head around at this glamorous where am I moment. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's a it's a callback to Roman Holiday. I love that. And this idea of like, oh, my gosh, beautiful clothes. And then the queen takes takes her into the jewel room. And oh, my gosh, I could wear these jewels like that sounds cool and exciting. But like in reality, right the assistant comes in and starts giving her her schedule. And like when yeah. she's allowed to call her parents after she does a public this and that, she's like, I have, I have a schedule. What? <laughs> so I think I appreciate this. Like you get to see some of this mystique and what mm. could be fun. Mm. Um, but then in reality, like you can be beheaded. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> See, I don't, I just don't, I don't have like a, a, like, I I don't care about royalty. I've never been someone who cared about royalty. Like I've never followed the royal family stuff only as much as like by seeing headlines occasionally, you know, you might notice it. I mean, yeah. (laughs) So I suppose I have, and I do, but I try to also cut myself off. Like, because it's like, these are just people with a really weird life. (laughs) Yeah. And let's not go, you know overboard with like 
la la. I mean, you couldn't grow up in the eighties without knowing something about Princess Diana. Like, exactly. So I, I know stuff about Princess Diana, but these days, like, I know that there's it's very important stuff going on with Meghan Markle and is it Harry? Yeah, Harry. Yeah, but I don't follow it because I'm just like, well, you know, I'd rather, I'd, I guess, I'd rather follow like just politicians or you know who have an effect on my laws in my country. And I know mm. in some countries, the royalty, like in UK, people are much more into it. Um, but like, I just, I, I just can't. Right. Well, then in the UK, I mean, I, I think I got a picture outside Buckingham Palace and I went on the Kensington tour because I knew that there would be a display of um, dresses and I wanted to see those dresses. Yeah. And, and going through like the jewel room, you know, where you see these jewels on display i mean i got to walk through the diamond district for a while when i lived in new york and i was on my way to work the train took me off at one end and i had to walk through the other i love looking at those jewels i'm like oh my gosh bling oh yeah it's so i don't pretty. care about jewels either <laughs> oh gosh you know i'm such a weirdo no no it's okay like i don't i don't buy jewels but i love i enjoy looking at them i think they're really pretty so those those are probably the two things i really only care about okay so, yeah. and like, I'm just trying to figure out though, like why they, why are there so many of these movies? Like, cause obviously clearly like I'm missing something that's making me like them as much as a lot of other people. I'm wondering if this, like we have so many of these princess and royalty movies because like of fairy tales or, you know, people are raised on Disney movies and th those often have royalty. I don't know. Like, do you, do you, do you think when you go to Europe and England or wherever, you know, it's all castles. Like what is there to tour? Mm. Oh, the castle. And it's a part of this like governing history, which is kind of wild, you know? I mean, like I said, you could be beheaded like Henry and all of the wives, you know, and who he wanted and like what changed, he changed a whole like religious slash government system yeah. so that he could marry who he wanted to. And like, so I think there's fascination with that and and a glamorization that's been added to all of that, which none of it was really glamorous. Well, like even when I visited Versailles, though, like I did visit Versailles when I was in Europe because of the history is interesting. But it's not as much like the royal aspect of it that interested me as much as just the grandiosity of the building, I guess, the artwork mm -hmm. and maybe the gardens. I am a little bit intrigued by Marie Antoinette just because she like tried to escape her royalty a little bit by having her like a uh, petit hameau, her little hamlet, her fake peasant village. That was fascinating. Uh -huh. Yeah. But, yeah. See there, but, but you have but a touch of it. Like, there you go. Good enough. I, but, <laughs> no, it's not really a touch of it though. <laughs> it's more like, cause like, I, I don't know, like it doesn't do much for me other than like, Oh, this is an odd thing that happened more more. You know what I mean? Anyway. Yeah. But um, let's see. So, and one thing I wonder about these movies though, too. So when we, when there's a movie where a princess or a prince is like, I'm sick of it. I don't want to be a princess or prince anymore. It's so hard. Like there's always a little part of me inside that rolls my eyes because I'm like, I feel like it, the audience, like you can't help but sympathize with the character a little bit, right? You're put in the character's shoes and you're like, of course, I wouldn't want to do all that crap either. But then at the same time, I think about all the people whose stories don't get told on the big screen, like people who have to work, you know, how many, 70 hours a week in a factory or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, yeah. they don't want to do that shit either, but they have to. And like, if you're a princess, you could, technically you would, could abdicate. Technically you could 
decide I'm going to be a normal person. But a lot of people, like normal people, just have no choice. So I'm wondering in a weird way if movies like this keep us from resenting royalty in some way. I don't Hmm. know. That's always something I've wondered. I don't I don't know. They I hear you think- though. Like you, you know, this part, like, oh, poor rich, poor, poor rich princess. <laughs> poor you and your beautiful life. I don't know, but there's that gilded cage kind of, you know, who wants yeah, to be it, in a gilded cage? But yeah, but it's like to me, I'm like, is it does it have to be a cage? Like, can you not just like decide to do something differently? Like, I don't know a ton about royalty, so I don't know a ton about people who have done something differently, but I know people have done a little, a few things differently. Like Diana, uh, unfortunately, she did not, her life did not end well, but she did try Mm -hmm. to raise her kids a little more down to earth. There's Mm -hmm. a story about how she actually went to a gay bar with Freddie Mercury. They, they dressed her up in, um, in clothes to disguise her. But like, I feel like, I feel like there could be potential for these people to escape a little bit. And so it's weird to me that we watch movies where these rich people are people we're supposed to feel sorry for. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> well, I mean, I did see a clip of the Harry and Meghan thing. And, you know, she talked about, like, I want to go grab coffee with my mom. And, like, I mm-hmm. couldn't. You know, Like, what? Yeah. You know, uh, and... Uh, but then they did choose to leave, you know? They did choose to leave. And apparently that's never easy. You know, they, they've they got a problem now with their family and bad blood and disagreements and blah, blah. Yeah. But I mean, still, they have the choice. And like, I just think of like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be a downer, but like, I still like, you're a downer. You're totally stop. a downer. Uh, <laughs> but so many people in the world, like they have no choice but to like work at grinding jobs like that they right. don't want to work at, you know, I'm like, mm-hmm. eh, well, whatever. It's, it's still fun to watch these movies. Extremes. In- you know? Yeah, and then talk about fun to watch rich people. Like we're doing crazy rich Asians next week, which also we'll have a ton to say about that, I'm sure. So, yeah, yeah and then you you said something about um. So I don't oh, being somebody yeah. who doesn't know about the royals. You said something about Princess Margaret. Can you? Yeah. Tell me so more? when when Roman Holiday was made, it was during uh, you know, it was over a couple years at least of Princess Margaret, Queen Elizabeth's sister, who was um in a relationship with this man, Peter Townsend, who had worked uh, for the family for years and they, they were in love and wanted to get married and whatnot. But um, you know, a lot of the verbiage was like, well, because he was a commoner, she, she did, it it wasn't, it was frowned upon, blah, blah, blah. Well, he was divorced. That was part of the bigger deal. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole like church and you know, what Queen Elizabeth could, allow and whatnot so essentially like she couldn't sanction this marriage for her sister and so in the end margaret chose her duty and did not marry this man later on she did marry somebody and still got divorced her own self and then queen elizabeth's four three of her four children got divorced and you know two of them remarried so it's just humorous to me this like oh you know, we can't because of, you can't do that. And then, you know, your, your rules aren't working out, <laughs> Yeah, you know, but the press from that was very helpful to uh, Roman holiday, mm. you know, this idea of a princess going off on her own and falling in love outside the, the norms of what's expected and what have you. 
So before, before we get to like um, double features and such, I just wanted to share some information that our good friend, Karen Carlson Snyder, uh, researched for the podcast. Originally, she was going to be with us, but she was unfortunately not able to be. And she is actually a film archivist. So I hope I do justice to her information. I also looked up a little bit about it on in Variety as well. So uh, Roman Holiday was given a Blu-ray release um, in September 15th, 2020 by Paramount. And they had a lot of trouble, unfortunately, um, with the restoration. And for a number of years, they couldn't even do it because they didn't have the technology. Because apparently the original nitrate negative had a lot of damage to it. And some of it was because of the printing process in Italy. You know, uh, Since the filming was on location, they couldn't use their regular labs for the dailies and prints. And there were different standards in Italy. So the original negative had a lot of damage. And then apparently they had lost the original negative too, but they had a fine grain that had been made from the negative. I don't completely understand everything I just read. I'm sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> it says a dupe negative was created from the fine grain. And then that dupe negative was blown up to remove some of the bad splices and tape left over from the original. And then they went back and they digitally remastered each frame and the modern software lets you go frame by frame and remove the damage without affecting the original grain of the film, according to Karen. And the picture was done by Technicolor at ProTech in LA. The audio was cleaned up by the Skywalker Sound and Deluxe. Apparently, there was no original multi-track audio elements, so they could not do an upmix, and they had to stick with a mono soundtrack. So thank you, Karen, for like researching wow. th this information. I wish you could have been here to share it with us, but hopefully at some point in the future we can have her on. She is a great film lover and a great friend of ours. Yeah. yeah. So finally, finally, we will end with our double feature ideas. I have like way too many. I'll try to keep mine short. <laughs> but um, yeah, so my first double feature idea is It Happened One Night, and that's because it's another story, an older movie and a story of a reporter uh, trying to get a scoop on, in this, in this case, just a, a rich girl who's escaping um, from her normal life. And so it's another romance. It's a charming movie, and I recommend it. Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. Oh, cool. Um, one of my first ones, as I already said, is Only You. It's with uh, Marissa Tomei and Robert Downey Jr. And um, she is a very free-spirited, whimsical romantic who uh, gets her fortune told as a teenager and then years later believes it has come true. And she runs off spontaneously to Italy where she thinks this fortune and love is going to come true. And along comes her uh, best friend and sister-in-law played by Bonnie Hunt and adventure and love ensues all over Italy. Some locate another location um, is San Gimignano, which my husband has been to and loves and says it's so beautiful. And I want to go and they uh, do a scene at, uh, the mouth of truth uh, and harken back. And they even, you know, say from Roman holiday, which <laughs> is pretty sweet. So. Nice. so my second double feature recommendation, I recommended before as a double feature with leap year, but it's really applicable to this too, because in chasing Liberty, the movie I'm going to recommend uh, the first daughter of the United States wants to escape to travel around Europe and a bodyguard uh, that she doesn't know is a bodyguard is sent after her. And, they they end up having a romance, but he is deceiving her. 
and she's deceiving him. It's a very similar situation okay. of enjoying a European vacation with two people who are hiding their identities. Oh, and part of Chasing Liberty is also in Venice. So not Rome, but still in Italy. Uh, and I have highly recommended The Prince and Me. You guys, it's not that great. <laughs> I've talked about it so much as if it's the best film ever. It's not, but I enjoy it. <laughs> and it has this prince running away uh, from his duties and then going back to his duties and being made better for his time with this girl, Paige, who wants to be a doctor and her farming family are just down to earth and give him a taste of like what the average person is, you know, hoping for and looking for in their work and whatnot. And I just think it's very sweet. Another sweet one with as far fetched as it is a to- a touch of believability that I can I can accept and uh, be like that that would really happen. Not really, but that's what I would say. Anyway, go ahead. So I'm going to lump two of mine together because I'm kind of recommending them for the same reason. So there's two movies that were shot soon after Roman Holiday in Italy. One of them, Three Coins in the Fountain from 1954, uh, was shot partly in Rome. And the other one, Summertime 1955 with Catherine Hepburn, was shot in Venice. And the reason I'm recommending these two movies. So the stories are a little bit dated and at times a little bit like cheesy even, but like you get to see Italy of that era in color. Like the way you're, when you're watching Roman holiday, I think modern viewers kind of almost long to see something in color. Right. So you get to see that 1950s foam stock applied to Italy in both summertime and three coins in the fountain. They're both love stories. Um, and I don't know. I like those old style kind of retro 1950s movies, even if the plots are a little dated. So both, I think, worth checking out. It's also worth mentioning that I used to think Catherine Hepburn and Audrey Hepburn were like cousins or something. (laughs) (laughs) This lasted for a long time. I was like, they must be. But that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) Um, Okay. This other film that I recommend is called For Rosanna. Um, But when I tried to look it up, a different title came up called Rosanna's grave. I'm like, what the heck? When did it change? So I know it as for Rosanna and it has, um, Jean Renault and Mercedes Raul and Polly Walker. And it's a, about this husband and wife living in this small town in Italy. She is terminally, terminally ill and she wants to be buried in the cemetery next to a loved one. Um, but there's only a f- couple plots left. And Jean Renault's character is the comedy part. So funny. He is trying to keep everybody alive so that his wife can have this plot. Um, and and hilarity ensues and completely far-fetched, like putting a body on ice and then having the thought out. And, oh, my goodness. Um, it, it's, but it's really funny. And I love all the Italian actors and the rest of the cast that pop up and it's a fun flick. If you can, you know, rent it from the library, what have you. And it's um, a lovely love story as well. Cool. Mm-hmm. And then I've just got two more and they're both on Netflix right now. The first one is Trumbo from 2015. And it tells uh, pretty accurately. I've read the story of Dalton Trumbo around the time of the Hollywood blacklist and writing Roman Holiday and then afterwards. And it was really excellent. It stars Brian Cranston and Diane Lane plays his wife. 
and you'll recognize a lot of other famous faces in the cast as well. Really touching movie, really enjoyed it. Super good. So that would be really interesting if you wanted to know a little bit about one of the creators of Roman Holiday. And another one, one of the actors in Roman Holiday, there's currently a Audrey Hepburn documentary called Audrey on Netflix, which just came out a little while ago. It's a 2020 documentary and just a lot of really great information about Audrey's, especially her personal life in that movie. So if you're interested, if you're a fan of hers, I think it's a don't miss documentary on Audrey Hepburn. And I think, Sophia, that was all for your double features? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just before we go, then, just to remind you that uh, you can find us at everyromcom.com. Please feel free to send us feedback on anything at feedback at everyromcom.com. And uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed the show. Next time, Crazy Rich Asians. (laughs) 